Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 9. Oh, pa, Dios. In our last episode, we covered the siege of Gaza and brought Alexander into Egypt. While he was there, we looked at the founding of the city of Alexandria, one of Alexander's most important legacies. In this episode, we'll look at Alexander's journey to the Oracle of Ammon at Siwa, the Aegis Revolt, and bring Alexander out of Egypt in preparation for his invasion of the Persian heartland. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we must return to Alexander in Alexandria during the winter of 332-331 BC. Now, last week, I said Alexander was impulsive, deciding to build the Mediterranean's greatest trade city. Now, after completing this, he decides he wants to travel to an oasis in the middle of the desert. Now, the obvious question is, why? This particular oasis possessed something special. An oracle. And not just any oracle. In the ancient world, there were three great oracles. The oracle at Delphi, at Dodona, and at Siwa. The oracle at Siwa being the oracle of Ammon. Ammon being the Egyptian version of Zeus. So, it was an important place in the ancient world. But it was still hundreds of miles away and doesn't explain what drove Alexander to do it. Arian suggests that Alexander had heard Perseus, who killed Masuda, and Heracles had consulted it. Alexander was supposedly descended from both of these, and he longed to equal their fame. Personally, I'm not satisfied with this explanation. So it's lucky that Arian gives a secondary reason. If you remember back to episode 3, you'll recall that there were rumours that Alexander's real father was Zeus, not Philip. Arian suggests Alexander was going there to find out the truth about his father. This account makes more sense. Alexander may have been really curious about his parentage, and if he wasn't, it could be a useful political tool. Something historian Michael Wood believes it was. We talked last episode about Alexander's genius for being accepted by local populations, and that he had been proclaimed pharaoh by the Egyptians. The pharaoh, I'm sure you'll know, was the son of Amun-Ra, sometimes shortened to either Amun or Ra. Therefore, it would back this up if he was declared son of Amun by the oracle. But for you to decide which one of these it was, you need an answer to the question. Did Alexander really think he was a god? Unfortunately, there is no answer to this question. You can see how this scenario quickly becomes confusing, and to fully understand it, it may help if we cover the events in question before attaching a meaning to them. From Alexandria, Alexander marched 200 miles along the coast, westward to the city of what the ancients called Amunia, Paraitonium and Paraitonium, depending on the time period, but what we today call Mersa Matra. While at Mersa Matra, 
Alexander met with the kings of Libya, the Greek word for Africa, and they surrendered to him, and they concluded peace and alliance. After this, Alexander turned south, into the desert. Let me paint you a picture of the desert. It is huge. You can look around and not see anyone else. There are very few, if any, points of reference, meaning that you must have people who are experts at navigating via the stars and the sun. It is dry. It hardly ever rains in the Sahara, meaning you must be very careful with your water rations, and when it does rain, it pours, creating horrific flash floods. There is also the wind, and when it picks up, it creates sandstorms, which could delay travel, if you're lucky. Reportedly, in 524 BC, a sandstorm buried the 50,000-strong army of Cambyses II when he was travelling to Siwa. That is the same Cambyses who stabbed the Apis. While writing the episode, I looked up some of the sandstorms, and they really are incredible to see. You can find some of these pictures on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. I'm sure you're expecting me to say it was hot. And it can get hot in the desert, I'm sure you'll be surprised to know. Temperatures of 57.8 degrees Celsius, that's 136 degrees Fahrenheit, have been reached in the Sahara. But in winter, the time Alexander would have been travelling, temperatures would have been about 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, the point is, the desert is not a very nice place to be. Anyway, according to the sources, the gods helped Alexander reach the oracle. As in Arian's own words, what could be more likely? The sources say that there were two main problems in reaching the oracle. The shortage of water and getting lost. The first problem was prevented as it rained. And the second was prevented as either two snakes or two birds led the army across the desert. And if an individual or group became separated from the main army, they would be led back, either by leading them or making noises to draw them close. Whatever happened, Alexander made it to the Oracle. Now it gets odd. Plutarch loves this section, giving it much detail. But yet, Arian, who is my preferred source, as he's much more reliable, and gives much more detail... Gives it only one sentence. Quote, he put his question to the oracle and received, or so he said, the answer which his heart desired. End quote. What does that mean? The last Arian said about Alexander's motives were wondering about his parents, but it doesn't go into what the oracle said. How very odd. Luckily for us, we have Plutarch. In his account, Alexander wanted to know whether his father's murderers had been brought to justice. And at this, the high priest asked him to speak more guardedly, as his father was not a mortal. Alexander then asked whether Philip's murderers had been brought to justice, to which the answer was, yes. Alexander then asked whether he was destined to rule over all of mankind. 
To which the answer was, yes. After receiving these answers, Alexander made magnificent offerings to Ammon, and presented large sums of money to the priests, which of course had nothing to do with those very favourable answers to his questions. Plutarch does offer different accounts of what's happened at Siwa. That Alexander was in some way called immortal is a common theme, but how exactly it happened changes. There is one sourced to Alexander's own letters in which Alexander says the priests told him secret information which he would reveal to Olympias upon his return to Macedonia. We're led to believe that this, then, was confirming his godhood, of course. There is a third and final version from Plutarch's account, that it was all a misunderstanding. When the priest greeted him, he addressed him with the Greek phrase, O Padion, which means, O my son. But due to the priest's accent, he mispronounced it, saying, O Padios, which translates as, O son of Zeus. Now we sort of know what happened at the oracle, we can really begin to look at the question, did Alexander think he was a god? Well, let's look into the argument that he did. There have always been rumours that he had been a son of Zeus. This would make him at least a demigod, otherwise known as a hero. Alexander, throughout his youth, had been gifted a great general, and he possessed great intelligence. He was a bigger-than-life character. Considering he was on another level to everyone else, maybe the rumours were true. Maybe he was something more than mortal. In the modern world, this doesn't make sense. If a prime minister or president won a war, or created an economic boom or some other notable achievement, and then declared themselves a god, you'd think them insane. But the ancient world had different standards. Heracles and Perseus were not legends, they were historical figures. The Iliad was not just a poem, it was a history of the Trojan War. Alexander considered it a guidebook in the art of war. In this world, Alexander being a god made sense. To some. I've spoken before about how proud the Greeks were. This difference in personality with the Persians and the Egyptians is a crucial part of our story. Darius was a divine king of kings. He was supremely powerful. If US President Harry Truman was in Darius's shoes, he would say, The book stops here. While Alexander was also a king, he was in a completely different situation. He had grown up with the Macedonian nobility. They were equals. Alexander was the first among equals, but they were equals. And, as the Macedonian nobility were not gods, then Alexander was not a god. But the Egyptians were used to having a divine ruler, and the security it brought. So, Alexander was a god. Are you beginning to see Alexander's problem? If he was a god, or a demigod, then the Greeks and Macedonians would be unhappy. And if he was a mortal then the Egyptians and Persians would be unhappy. Alexander chose an interesting solution. He would act divine to non-Greeks. 
But when, with the Greeks and Macedonians, he was more restrained. An equal. Not a god. Sometimes, though, he would change his stance. When writing to the Athenians about Samos, he said, I would never give you that free and glorious city, if it was from your master at that time when you received it, and now hold it, from my so-called father. This shows him disowning Philip as his father. There are other cases when he claimed he was human. When he was wounded by an arrow, he apparently said, What you see flowing, my friends, is blood, and not that ichor which flows in the veins of the blessed immortals in heaven. Ichor being what flows in the veins of the gods. So, he acted like a god. But did he really think he was... Or was this just a publicity stunt? I think a publicity stunt, but I may well be wrong. I'll move off this topic for now, but before I do, I'll just say I think it was a publicity stunt to begin with. Right. It's the winter of 332-331 BC, and Alexander is in Siwa. He next heads to Memphis either directly or via Alexandria. If Alexandria had been founded by that point, some think he founded Alexandria on the return journey. While at Memphis, Alexander received reinforcements from Greece, and it was time to be off again. But first, Egypt needed to be governed. Hopefully, over the previous two episodes, I've highlighted how important Egypt was. Being fabulously wealthy and fertile, Egypt would be a rival empire on its own, and thus must be treated differently. Alexander divided political control of the province between Doroaspis and Petisis, who are notable as they are both Egyptians. One would control Upper Egypt and the other Lower Egypt, and under these would be two other governors, prefects if you will, controlling Libya in the west, and Arabia towards Heropolis in the west. These would be Apollonius, son of Carinus, and Cleomenes of Narcratius. We'll have much more to say about Cleomenes later. Underneath all of these were Macedonian garrison commanders. Anyway, to sum up, Rather than giving power to a single Macedonian, Alexander split power into four sources, including natives. This prevented creating an opposing sense of power, and would ensure the loyalty of the Egyptians, while Greek and Macedonian underlings could keep check on them. Smart Alexander. Very smart. Well, this was somewhat worrying when Petisis declined the offer meaning that Doloaspis had extra power, which really defeats the point. The idea of weakening the command in Egypt was one that would stick, though, and this was certainly the inspiration for Augustus placing the province under the control of an equite, rather than a senator, when he conquered it for the Roman Empire. While reorganising the government of Egypt, Alexander began reorganising the government of his empire. For you to really understand this, I'm afraid we must venture into Persian and Macedonian governing techniques, 
and return to the reign of Philip. Philip inherited a small patriarchal monarchy in 359 BC, and over the next 23 years would turn it into a large complex state. One of the main ways he did this was through imitating aspects of the Persian military, and also their administration. In 343 BC, the new Macedonian province of Thrace was placed under the control of a general, and was very much like a Persian satrapy. A satrapy being a province. The Macedonian chancellery was reorganised along Persian lines. Philip's companions were similar to the Persian king's friends, and Macedonian royal pages helped Philip mount his horse in the Persian manner. Once Alexander launched his campaign in 334, he carried on in the Persian tradition. He did this by, as summed up excellently in a quote from Frederick Roberts, a British field marshal, I feel sure I am right when I say the less the Afghans see of us, the less they dislike us. Alexander, generally, did not interfere with local law, religion or culture, and was very respectful. A little too respectful for his countrymen's liking, but it made him greatly admired by his new subjects. Alexander stuck to a satrap mould in his government model. They would collect taxes and could recruit mercenaries. This was different in Egypt, but in the spring of 331 BC, he created a whole new administrative level for tax collection, giving Macedonians from his central treasury wide-ranging spheres of control, which were nothing like any Achaemenid satrapies. One was put in control of Phoenicia, another of Asia west of the Tyrus Mountains, while Cleomenes would have a similar role in Egypt. Still with me? I hope so. I'm sorry that wasn't the most exciting piece of history, but it is interesting nonetheless, and should give you a better idea of how Alexander was governing his empire. This mainly serves as an introduction to the subject. We'll finish it off much later in history, although that will be more exciting as it involves what some historians have dubbed Alexander's Reign of Terror. So, Alexander made his way north, basing himself in Tyre in 331 BC. It is from here that he will launch himself into the Persian heartland to fight Darius once again. But that will have to wait till next time. Right now, we're going to aggress the situation in Greece, covering the Aegis Revolt. So, where were we last off in Greece? Pharnabasis, the Persian commander in the region, controlled several islands in the Aegean and the Hellespont, while Aegis III of Sparta was planning war on the mainland, having just taken a significant part of Crete. They wanted to transfer the war to Greece by causing trouble there and cutting off Alexander's supplies. In 331, after years of waiting, they decided that now was time to act. Why was it now time to act, you ask? It is all to do with a Macedonian general named Zopyrian. Who is Zopyrian, you ask? He was the governor of either Thrace or Pontus. Zopyrian was scared of being sidelined, and decided to launch an invasion of the Scythian tribes to the north. 
To do this, he collected 30,000 troops and marched north into the Ukraine, besieging the colony of Miletus, Olbia, which was allied to the Scythians. Olbia is just to the west of the Crimean Peninsula. Zoperian failed to take the city, and on his retreat was massacred. Meanwhile, Memnon of Thrace, the governor of Thrace, revolted, leaving the regent of Macedonia, Antipater, to focus his attention there. This was what Aegis and his Persian allies had been waiting for. Aegis revolted, and won a battle against a Macedonian general, allowing him to link up with his allies, Elsis, Achaea, and Arcadia. However, Megalopolis, the capital of Arcadia, was very much anti-Spartan, leading Aegis to besiege the city, which naturally alarmed the Macedonians. To prevent himself being on war on two fronts, Antipater pardoned Memnon, allowing him to remain governor of Thrace, something Memnon agreed to. Alexander sent funds to Antipater, which were used to recruit mercenaries, and Antipater marched south to confront Aegis at Megalopolis. Antipater had the larger force of 40,000, with Aegis having only 30,000. Antipater was able to defeat the rebels, leaving Aegis to retreat to Sparta. But Antipater attacked en route, and Aegis fought to allow his men to retreat. The Aegis revolt was over. Well, that was quick. Partly because Plutarch and Arian don't talk about the revolt, and I've struggled to piece together that hopefully accurate narrative. And mostly because it was quite minor in the grand scheme of things. That is pretty much the story in Greece, at least for quite a while. Pharnabasis was still at large, but his territory would revolt and he would be captured, only to escape in what I think was 331 BC. He then vanishes for a while. We assume he surrendered to Alexander, and ended up fighting in the wars following Alexander's death. Remember to find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod. You can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast. And you can drop me an email if you have a question about anything. That is the history of podcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join us next week, as we follow Alexander into his biggest battle yet. The Battle of Gaugamela. Gaugamela